Welcome back to The Europeans, a podcast that talks about the continent of Europe in all of its glorious and messy diversity. Uh, On which note, it seems that this week the internet discovered the custom in Sweden and other Nordic countries of announcing to your guests, like, okay, we're going to eat now, but the guest isn't actually invited to the meal even though they're at your house. And they either get sent to another room while everyone else eats, or they get made to watch at the table while you and your family eat. Like, the guest doesn't get any food. Well, my first question is, is this actually true? Whenever I see these things on the internet, I always think... Is this just something that used to happen? Does it still really happen? Well, there was a lot of debate about the extent to which this does still get practiced, even though a lot of Swedes of our age do seem to have experienced it at some points in their lives, including the Swedish pop star Zara Larsson. Well, if it's happened to Zara Larsson, then I totally believe it. Okay, I'm convinced it sounds very odd. (laughs) Am I going to alienate all our Swedish listeners now? I hope not, because we did ask uh, last week all of our listeners to tell their Swedish friends to listen to their podcast. So hopefully there are loads of Swedes listening to this. And I'd love to hear from them about their experiences of food and hospitality. Um, But my favourite tweet about this was captioned, on my way to my Swedish friend's house. And it was a photo of a woman uh, wearing a jacket made of Ziploc bags that were filled with sandwiches so that she didn't have to go hungry. Uh, It was very funny. Anyway, um, leaving aside the question of whether people feed their guests or not. How have you been, Dominic? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just a big ball of snot at the moment. So Mm. probably the less asked, the better. Shall I go ahead and just tell everyone what's coming up in the show? I think you probably should. Well, coming up this week, we're going to be speaking to Victoria Scherdult, a Hungarian journalist working for Have Gay, which is a highly respected Hungarian weekly magazine. And Sadly, one of the few remaining outlets that is actually critical of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's government. Viktor Orban is someone who you're probably aware is within the EU the closest leader to Russian President Vladimir Putin. And for that reason, he has been in the news a lot lately, causing quite a bit of trouble for the European Union, who have been trying to place further sanctions on Russia. We'll be speaking to Victoria later on in the show to find out how Orban's moves are playing to the domestic audience and to see if she can help us work out what Orban is planning on doing. That's coming up later, but first it's time for... Who's had a bad week, Dominic? It's been a bad few weeks and actually a bad few months for the organisers of Documenta 15, the contemporary art exhibition that takes place in the city of Kassel in the middle of Germany. They will open on June the 18th and stay open for 100 days. But for some time now, the festival has found itself embroiled in an anti-Semitism row. And things really escalated when one of the exhibition spaces was vandalized and graffitied with cryptic death threats, after which the organizers filed a criminal complaint. I have to admit, I don't really know much about uh, the modern art world, uh, being a bit of a Philistine. So could you start by telling us maybe about what this whole documenta thing is? I don't think you're much of a Philistine, Katie. Thank you. Sure, I'll tell you anyway. 
Documenta takes place every five years. Um, I think you therefore call it a quinquennial. Lovely word. It is a great word. The first edition was in 1955. It was launched as an attempt to bring Germany up to speed with modern art after the horrors of Nazism in Germany. The original curator wanted to exhibit work that the Nazis had pretty disgustingly described as degenerate art or entarte to Kunst. Subsequent documenters started moving more and more towards presenting contemporary art from across Europe, and nowadays the festival has a reputation for giving a platform to artists from all over the world who are making work that reflects on the problems of the world today. This edition of the festival is being curated by an Indonesian art collective, Roang Grupa, who are running this year's festival using the core values and ideas of lumbung, which is this Indonesian term for a communal rice barn. Hmm. So the themes of this edition are things like working as a collective, sharing resources and equal distribution. That all sounds very nice, um, but it doesn't sound like setting up the festival has been that smooth this year from what you said a minute ago. What are these accusations of anti-Semitism? Well, the allegations emerged when a local group called the Alliance Against Anti-Semitism, Kussel, wrote a blog post many months back that accused Documenter 15 of hosting quote, anti-Israeli activists, saying that the curators and several artists exhibiting were connected to the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, otherwise known as the BDS movement. And I will immediately mention that that central allegation that artists involve support the BDS movement has actually been queried by the organizers. But I'll come back to that in a bit. Rangrupa, the curators, strongly deny any accusations of anti-Semitism. They say, to be clear, no anti-Semitic statements of any kind have been made in the context of Documenta 15. We strongly reject these accusations and refuse to accept bad faith attempts to delegitimize artists and preventatively censor them on the basis of their ethnic heritage and presumed political positions. So just to go back to the BDS thing, BDS is this global movement to put economic pressure on the state of Israel to treat Palestinians a lot better than they are being treated currently, frankly, and to end the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian West Bank. Is that right? Correct. And without getting into it too much, because it is incredibly sensitive and we could spend hours debating this alone, there is this ongoing and very painful debate about whether the BDS movement is a, a peaceful way of protecting oppressed Palestinians and should be compared to like the way in which boycotts were used to fight apartheid in South Africa, or whether, I mean, to its critics, it's an anti-Semitic movement. Yeah. Um, and just to be clear, the BDS movement totally rejects accusations that it's anti-Semitic, but it is, at least according to its founding documents, anti-Zionist, that is, depending on what your definition of Zionism is. It's all very complicated and difficult to unpick, and I'm definitely not going to try and give any kind of answer to this debate today. But one thing that's important to know is that the BDS movement is particularly controversial in Germany. Back in 2019, a resolution came to the German parliament advocating against financing any project that calls for a boycott of Israel. The resolution described the BDS movement as anti-Semitic. As you might expect, there was quite some pushback to this resolution, including from some key figures in the German cultural scene, directors from 25 institutions, including the Goethe Institute and Berlin's Deutsches Theater. They said in a joint letter that accusations of anti-Semitism are being misused to push aside important voices and to distort critical positions. 
Nonetheless, the resolution did get voted through by the German parliament. And so to go back to this, uh, our exhibition is Documented 15 in support of the BDS movement or not? Well, its curators, Rangrupa, say they are not. They published a letter in which they said it was never planned to hold events featuring the BDS movement at Document 15. And what about the individual artists? To be honest, I don't know for sure. I haven't been able to find a very clear answer. There were allegations of BDS supporting artists in this blog post from the Alliance Against Anti-Semitism Castle, and at least some of those allegations seem to have been disproven. For example, in that critical blog post, they mentioned that some artists involved in Documenta signed an open letter criticizing the German parliament resolution against the BDS movement. Sorry, but this is another open letter, not the one I mentioned earlier. Apologies for all the many open letters here. Ruan Gruper, the curators say that the fact that these artists signed this open letter and were critical of the German parliament's resolution does not necessarily mean that they are supporters of the BDS movement. In fact, they point out that in this open letter, it explicitly states that the signatories hold different views for and against the BDS movement. Mm. The signatories merely agreed that banning discussion of it is dangerous and counterproductive. Rowan Gruper responded to this specific allegation of BDS proximity, and they say the accusation of BDS proximity from which the accusation of Israel-related anti-Semitism is derived primarily affects people from the global south and especially from the Middle East and leads to exclusions and disqualifications. Mm. And it's in a statement like this that you might be able to understand why many of the artists and organizers have said that some of these accusations of anti-Semitism are in fact racist themselves. And it's clearly an incredibly difficult topic to talk about, especially in Germany for obvious reasons. Rangrupa had planned on hosting a forum of discussions called We Need to Talk, a forum looking at art, freedom and solidarity in a world that's seeing rising anti-Semitism, racism and Islamophobia. This forum was launched in response to the accusations that they received of anti-Semitism, but the forum itself then received sharp criticism from Joseph Schuster, the president of the Central Council of Jews in Germany. He wrote a letter to the culture minister of Germany where he said that events had a clear bias against anti-Semitism. A bias against anti-Semitism? Doesn't that sound like a good thing? I also found that statement really difficult to understand. Bias against anti-Semitism. But it, he is saying that they are not supporting the fight against anti-Semitism, I think. Right. The organizers strongly deny this, but some panelists started withdrawing from the forum after his letter and eventually Documented decided to cancel the forum. And then a few weeks after that cancellation, there was this vandalism of one of the spaces that was being prepared for exhibition. It was this space where a Palestinian artist group called The Question of Funding are going to be showing. This group of artists were at the centre of the criticism from the Alliance Against Anti-Semitism Castle, but in their words, their work is seeking to question, debate and find solutions to the prevalent, constrictive international funding models on which Palestinian cultural institutions continue to depend. What kind of vandalism are we talking about here? Um, well, there was just some generalised damage to the walls of the space, but the most chilling aspect was the fact that there was graffiti all over the walls. And graffiti that's at first look a bit cryptic, but it's being interpreted as death threats. One of the statements that was all over the walls was the number 187, thought to refer to the Californian penal code for murder. 
Another was the word Peralta, which is thought to refer to a controversial far-right Spanish political figure who was recently caught with a swastika and a copy of Mein Kampf in her bag at an airport. This vandalism, as I said, is being interpreted by many as veiled death threats, and it's also being considered by the curators as politically motivated. And some artists have been very critical of the German media for their role in this anti-Semitism row, arguing that the German media have uncritically repeated inaccurate claims from the original blog post from Alliance Against Anti-Semitism Kassel. After the vandalism was discovered, the South African artist Candice Breitz shared a press statement on Facebook, and along with 42 other artists in that statement, they accused the media of racist incitement and said that artists are fearing for their safety in Kassel, especially, and I quote, given the recent history both in Kassel and the state of Hessen of murderous racism and organized far-right extremism. I don't really know how to round out this bad week, to be honest. It's clearly very sad and scary, and it's frankly quite difficult to talk about. Um, In reading up about what has been happening in Kassel, I noticed myself just wanting to find another topic uh, to talk about for bad week this week, a topic that's easier to explain, where everyone agrees on definitions of words, because it just feels so difficult to get all the nuance right. And maybe it sounds glib to say it, but there is just so much history involved. But in the end, I think it is important that we try our best to talk about these issues, however hard they are to talk about, and to understand them as best we can. But yeah, it's clearly been a bad week for Documenta 15. Bad week indeed. You know, it's this is just one of those things where it just feels like you can get stuck in this endless loop of people accusing other people of being racist and then saying like your criticism of us is racist and then it's you know it's just the same thing like layered on top of each other over and over again and it's exhausting i just don't know how we deal with conflicts like this no but it feels like the attempt by the festival to me at least it felt like the attempt to talk about it was a positive step and then that got shut down and that makes me sad yeah me too (sighs) cheer us up with good week who's had a good week katie um yeah perfect gear change after what we just talked about but i am giving good week to a new draft law in spain that i'm a little bit in love with you know when you have to call your bank or your telecoms provider or the customer services phone line of any kind of company and all you want to do is to talk to a real life human being yes but what you get instead is press one for this thing press two for that thing all the way up to press 73 for yet another thing and none of the things are your thing. And actually more and more I'm finding that you can't even sometimes find a telephone number. They want you to go on an online chat to speak to a robot and only after like five minutes of chatting to the robot will they even give you a telephone number. The ones that I hate even more are the ones that it is a phone line but it has voice recognition and the robot lady says like please state while you're calling. So you have to say out loud like my package has not been delivered and you feel really stupid if you're in public and um i always feel like i have to reply to the robot in a really flat robot voice so that it understands you my package has not been delivered i really hate these situations because it really feels sometimes like the company is just trying to get you to give up and put the phone down and stop complaining especially in situations where the phone call isn't free it's just like a giant scam but Imagine a world where all of these situations just went away. In Spain, that might just be what the future looks like. Because there was this bill presented by the government last week, under which, by law, you'll be able to request to just speak to a human straight away. Game changer. Game changer. I think it's a small thing, but it's a thing that will make people's lives better. 
Why don't we move to Spain? Why don't we? Uh, the same bill would also force companies to answer calls within a maximum of three minutes, which I know will come as happy news for anyone else who's had to listen to the same song over and over again on the IKEA helpline for an hour. And companies will have to prove that they have answered 95% of calls within these three minutes. And if you're the provider of an essential service like electricity or water or the internet, those companies will have to offer round-the-clock customer service from humans every single day of the year. Wow, it sounds amazing, but I imagine some of the companies are not going to be so pleased about this because presumably the robots are cheaper than the uh, humans. Yeah, they're probably not going to be very happy about it. But this new law is only going to apply to utility providers, which are generally pretty big companies, as well as all companies in general that have more than 250 workers or turnover of 50 million euros a year. So it's not going to apply to little businesses like, you know, my parents' bike shop, for example. Uh, even though I did quite like helping out with customer service phone calls when they were really busy during COVID. Um, the Spanish bill in general has lots of different measures in it to do with stopping customer service phone lines from being so irritating. For example, uh, all customer complaints will have to be dealt with within 15 days. That is half the time that it currently is, 30 days. And in Spain's autonomous communities like Catalonia and the Basque Country, they'll be able to impose even stricter deadlines if they want to. They could make it a maximum of a week, for example. Uh, customers will no longer be able to use these helplines to try to sell you more stuff while you're waiting. And the bill also calls for more measures to make sure that helplines are accessible for elderly people and people with disabilities. Uh, things like having the option to talk to customer services via a video call with sign language, for example. And so what is the punishment if these companies do not manage to get a human to speak to you within three minutes? Uh, they'll get slapped with a fine, apparently. Ooh. Anything between 150 euros and 100,000 euros. Whoa. Although I'm wondering how long the wait would have to be for the final fine to be like 100 grand. Um, the bill needs to be approved by Parliament, but it did put a big smile on my face reading about it this week. Um, and also, as producer Katz pointed out, Spain's had a really good run of suggesting good and interesting laws recently, including a new law that gives women medical leave for period pain, a law that recognises animals as sentient beings, and a really, really important new law on sexual consent. Uh, so yeah, keep it up, Spanish legislators. Hopefully that law that you spoke about a few weeks ago about uh, parental leave for single parents, maybe that'll be next. They are busy, those Spanish legislators. Working nine to five. Yeah, they also had a four-day week trial, didn't they? So they're not working nine to five. <laughs> working round the clock like uh, like one of those utility companies. We've got a few more lovely people to thank this week for joining our band of supporters on the website Patreon and helping keep this podcast alive. Thank you to Bill Merch and Anya Lazutkina. Thank you guys so much. You can join Bill and Anya and feel a little glow about doing something good by signing up to help us out at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. The only reason that we're able to keep making this podcast for whole years after we started it is because of amazing listeners who throw a little bit of money our way each month so that we can pay ourselves and our producers. So go ahead, do it. You can donate a little or a lot. You can pay up front for a whole year if it makes it easier. And there's loads of different currencies available. One of the perks you get if you join 
our Patreon is that you get access to our secret Facebook group, which I've been really enjoying this week. There was some really great chat about whether cats should be allowed outside after you were talking about the cats in Germany who couldn't go outside. Oh, I thought you were talking about cats, our producer, <laughs> whether oh. she should be allowed outside or not. I think she should. <laughs> so do I. Um, one listener in Warsaw was talking about the fact that like the most cat owners she knew in that city haven't been letting their cats out for years mm. for biodiversity reasons and for parasitic risks to the cats. And cats in Iceland have a curfew. Who knew? Who knew? Anyway, it's a really interesting place to find out about things like that that are going on in other parts of the world that you might not otherwise know about. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you might remember that a full four episodes ago, I gave a tentative good week to the EU because it looked like it was about to agree a ban on importing Russian oil. Except, oh wait, somebody threw a spanner in the works. Uh, Guess who, Dominic? I think it was Viktor Orban. Correct. Uh, So the EU does now finally have an oil embargo in place, 26 days later than planned. And that policy is going to put a stop to 90% of the EU's oil imports from Russia by the end of the year, which is good news. That is billions and billions of euros that will no longer be going towards funding Russia's horrific war in Ukraine. But there are three countries in Central Europe that will still be able to keep receiving Russian oil via a pipeline. They are Hungary, Slovakia and the Czech Republic. These are all landlocked countries. It's really difficult for them to get oil in other ways. And Bulgaria has also been given a little bit longer than the other countries to wean itself off Russian oil. So Hungary isn't the only country that's managed to secure exemptions from the oil embargo. But it's definitely the government that has been kicking up a fuss the loudest in recent weeks. And not just over the oil embargo. In recent days, there's been another example of the Hungarian government holding up EU action intended to support Ukraine. In this case, it was about this guy, Patriarch Kirill. He's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church and a massive propagandist for Putin. A lot of EU countries wanted to put him on the sanctions list. But we couldn't do that because once again, the Hungarian government said, "Mm, you know what, we're going to block this. Which begs the question, what exactly is Viktor Orban playing at? Everybody knows that Hungary's prime minister doesn't have a great relationship with the EU. In recent years, the EU has taken legal action over his government's homophobia and its disregard for basic democratic norms. But since the war in Ukraine, Hungary has been taking a pretty lonely path within the EU in staying rather cosy with Putin and undermining EU unity when it comes to the war. Why is Orban doing all of this? Well, to discuss this rather intriguing question, we thought we would ring up someone that we've been wanting to get on the podcast for ages, Victoria Scherdult. She is a journalist at Havege, which is a leading Hungarian magazine and news site, one of the few remaining bastions of independent media in the Orban era. She joined us from Budapest. There have been a couple of occasions over the past month where it really feels like Viktor Orban has got what he wanted from the EU by being difficult. Hungary already had a pretty bad relationship with Brussels. What does that relationship look like now? You're right about that, because bad relationship with Brussels is nothing new in Hungary. But you might remember the 2015 migration crisis And then afterwards, all the posters in Hungary about blaming Brussels and then all the Soros campaign in Hungary. So that relationship is typical within the relationship of Hungary and the EU. The thing is that this time Orban 
might have gone a bit too far with the oil embargo and Patriarch Kirill, of course, who has to be taken off the sanction list. But you also shouldn't forget the relationship of the EU and Hungary has always been also pragmatic because they need each other. So the relationship might be bad, but it's not going to end in like this row of Hungary being kicked out because they both need each other. In the cases of both the oil embargo and whether or not to sanction Patriarch Kirill, this Russian religious leader, it really looked like the EU was pretty ready to act against Russia. The deal was basically ready and on the table. And then at the last minute, the Hungarian government raises its hand and says, no, 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 we're going to obstruct this. So it seems kind of like Orban wants to look like a troublemaker. Why do that? Is this about playing to a domestic audience, maybe? It was not last minute. You shouldn't forget that. Like Orban before, even in the Corapair, he said that he's not going to agree with Patriarch Kirill being on the sanctions list. Uh-huh. And this is very typical of Orban. Maybe you read opinions of EU diplomats about Orban saying that the advantage of the Hungarian prime minister is that he always does what he says. That's a big difference between Poland and Hungary. So actually him vetoing the sanctions list and having this big trouble with the oil embargo was not unexpected at all. Some people have suggested it's actually a bit strange that the Hungarian government made such a big fuss trying to get Patriarch Kirill off the sanctions list. Um, The official reason was that it was a threat to religious freedom. But it doesn't really feel like Hungary's national interests were directly at play. What do you think was going on there? Well, that's hard to tell because I can't really see into Orban's head. But in my opinion, like his policy has always been this double game between the European Union and also Russia. Hungary is a landlocked country. It's a small country. Orban might want to make it big, but it is a small country. He wants to make allies on all sides. So when he needs somebody and somebody is not willing to help him, he can turn to the other side. So it does need Vladimir Putin also because Hungary literally is dependent on oil and gas from Russia. So he must keep close to Putin and this is how he does it. So for Orban, keeping the energy prices low is very important domestically because that's something that he's built his whole election campaign on. So if energy prices soar in Hungary because of embargo or any other step by the EU, then he's going to lose the elections. So he must keep them low. And for that, he needs Vladimir Putin and he needs this exception from the embargo. If I told you how much my energy cost is you'd probably be surprised because it's so low. How much do you pay if you don't mind telling us? For my uh, heating every month, that's 7,000 forints a month, which should be divided by 400. 17 euros, 18 euros. Wow. Oh my goodness. So Hungary really has stood out from other EU countries in terms of Orban being pretty pro-Putin since the beginning of the war. Every so often I I read through Hungarian media coverage in translation and and I'm shocked by how kind of propaganda-like it has become. You work for one of the depressingly few media outlets that have managed to stay independent in Hungary. But I'm curious about what Hungarians are hearing from state media about the war in Ukraine. What kind of narratives are people hearing? It is pure propaganda, as you say. Even when the war broke out, there were these talking heads on TV saying that it was actually Ukraine's fault that the war started because they shouldn't have angered Putin. But now it's more like a blame game against President Zelensky. I don't know whether you remember Orban's victory speech on the 3rd of April, where he basically called Zelensky an opponent to Hungary. 
which was even by my standards, somebody who's been living in Hungary for quite like 40 years, that was strange. And ever since then, this putting the blame on President Zelensky has been taken over by pro-government media as well. Also, there's a big blame on the United States. But if you listen to propaganda media only, that is the only narrative you will get. His decision to be so critical of Zelensky is somewhat at odds with other European countries that Hungary previously got on quite well with. I mean, especially Poland, which was quite a close ally in terms of both of them having illiberal governments that were having conflicts with the EU for similar reasons. How badly has that relationship been damaged by Orban cozying up to Putin? Uh, Very badly. (laughs) If you listen to all the comments from Polish politicians who have really been good friends with Orban, like all these Orban bashing, all these... uh, statements against Hungary by even prominent Polish politicians is really unusual in the relationship between the two countries. But you mustn't forget that Hungary and Poland and also the V4 countries, this uh, loose alliance of uh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Poland and Hungary, has always been built on smaller issues. They always had uh, difficulties agreeing on defense policy and especially Russia. So when it comes to Russia, the differences have always been there. Orban comfortably won re-election earlier this year, as you say. So Brussels can expect to be dealing with him for years to come. Are you expecting him to keep using this tactic that we've seen recently of troublemaking to get what he wants from the EU? Absolutely. Orban's policy is based on making himself indispensable. As I said, Hungary is a small country. So Orban's only chance of getting what he wants is to be the troublemaker and also to have this pragmatic policy of playing a double game, as I said before. He has to play for his domestic audience. I expect him to be the troublemaker for a long time, but also be a pragmatic politician because he needs the EU and he needs the EU to see him as indispensable. He might seem a troublemaker, but he really is like the longest serving head of government in the EU. He knows exactly how to handle the EU. And actually, for me, it's quite frustrating that the EU cannot do anything against him. Even the commission or the council, like they need his vote. So they always have to appease him. And and that's a big problem. And one of the things he needs from the EU is for them to release this funding that they've been withholding from Hungary um, because of the way that his government has been undermining democracy. It feels like that's going to be a long and drawn out process. But isn't Orban afraid of that money being withheld? Yeah, he is. And that's the biggest tool in the hands of the EU. If they want to achieve a difference in the relationship with Hungary, that's something that they must use because Orban knows that he has to have that money by the end of this year. Otherwise, that will be lost. So I think on that, he might be open to compromise. Thank you so much to Victoria for joining us. If you are interested in following news from Hungary, and why wouldn't you be, frankly, she is a really excellent person to follow on Twitter. You can find her at Victoria Scherdult. The link is in the show notes. (laughs) 
what have you been enjoying this week? This week I started listening to a new podcast. It's called On Spec and it's based out of Istanbul, but sources its stories from a group of freelance journalists living all over the place, making really interesting one-off radio documentaries. An episode that I found really moving from their most recent series came from the journalist Nadine Guri and tells her personal story of trying to bring a child into the world and eventually searching for a surrogate to carry her child. I found Nadine's frank reflections on the process of becoming a parent very touching. I won't give a whole synopsis of the episode, but the woman that ended up being a surrogate for Nadine lived in Ukraine. That was because of the surrogacy laws in Ukraine up until the war escalated. Ukraine was actually a very popular destination for families searching for a surrogate. I won't say much more. I recommend you just check out the series on spec and especially this episode, which is called Surrogacy, War and Survival in Ukraine. Mm. What have you been enjoying, Katie? Uh, I have been racing through the final season of Dairy Girls over the past couple of weeks. You a Dairy Girls fan? No, I'm not. But everyone's been saying how incredible this final season is. Ah, it's so good. It's such a good show in general. Uh, If you don't know it, it is a comedy series set in Derry in Northern Ireland during the 1990s. It is about five teenagers at a Catholic school. It's a real kind of coming of age kind of show. And uh, it's always been really good at blending self-deprecating humor and absurd situations with this quite traumatic backdrop of the conflict in 1990s Northern Ireland. And it's just a show with a really good heart. The third season is set in the months before the signing of the 1998 Good Friday Peace Agreement, which even if you're not British or Irish, you've probably heard a lot about this peace agreement if you follow Brexit news. And as a season, it is just as funny and silly as the rest of the show with an absolutely banging 1990s soundtrack. But yeah, as you say, Dominic, the final episode is, I I just think it's one of the best pieces of television I've seen in a really, really long time. It is so moving and beautiful in terms of the way that it brings home the meaning of this peace agreement to ordinary people's lives. And at a time when some members of the UK Conservative Party appear to be pretty reckless in terms of their willingness to risk this peace agreement in the name of Brexit, I just think the Derry Girls finale should be required viewing for politicians, frankly. The final season is now everywhere yet. I watched it on Channel 4 while I was back in the UK recently, but I know that seasons one and two are on Netflix in quite a lot of countries. So you can catch up with those while you're waiting for the final episodes. Oh, I should finally watch it. Sounds great. I've got a happy ending for you from a team of scientists at the University of Copenhagen who managed to successfully sequence the genome of a victim of the Pompeii eruption for the first time ever. Wow. What does it mean, though? Um, It means that the scientists managed to extract DNA from the remains of a victim, which in itself is quite amazing considering the violent eruption took place in AD 79. And they then managed to successfully sequence that DNA, making it possible to compare the DNA's genetic codes to other people in the region and find out about some of their characteristics. What kind of characteristics? Is it like their hair colour and stuff? Well, it seems like um, the guy had tuberculosis when he died. Oh, wow. Bummer. Sorry, not as fun as hair colour. 
But it has led the scientists to speculate whether that is why his remains were found inside a house, not outside trying to flee like most other bodies that have been found. Mm. Um, he was actually found with the body of a woman whose DNA they sadly weren't able to fully sequence, but they discovered that she was over 50 years old and had osteoarthritis. Sorry, you said this was a happy ending, Dominic. <laughs> What's the deal? Sorry, I realize I may have gone a bit off track here. But look, it's very happy news for the scientists who found it. And they found it very interesting to see that the DNA shared similarities with modern individuals from central Italy. But it also shared uh, similarities with groups of genes that were more commonly found in Sardinia, suggesting that there was quite some genetic diversity in Italy during that time. The successful study now opens the door for scientists to extract more DNA from victims of Pompeii, as up until now, it was not actually certain that their genetic material would have been preserved by the catastrophe. But it was. So hurrah. Hurrah. We'll be back next week talking about a really, really interesting plan in the Netherlands to bring the law up to date with the fact that a lot of families these days have more than two parents. Don't miss it. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, not tweeting about Swedish food and hospitality habits, but tweeting about lots of other interesting stuff at Europeans Pod. And we're on Instagram at Europeans Podcast. This episode was produced by Katie Lee, my co-host, and Wojciech Alexiak. Katz Laszlo, our other producer, is off working on some other exciting episodes at the moment. We are a member of the Are We Europe audio family. You can go and check out their other audio offerings at areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family. Is that right? Yes, that's right. They'll find it. They're smart people. See you next week, everyone. Bye. Peace, lads.